Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, everybody, and welcome back, finally, to another episode of Testers Island Discs. It seems like I say this all the time. I've been off for a little while uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I'm taking a bit of a career break at the moment. Uh, I may have mentioned this in a couple of other podcasts lately, um, taking a bit of time out to, to recharge and work out what I want to do next. But the podcast must go on. And so here we are today with Callum Akers Ryan. Callum has been in tech for over 15 years in various roles in testing, coaching and PM roles. And he's now started a new position as a lead quality engineer at Adaga. You may know him as an event speaker and more recently as a compare, introducing the world to Ramon the Testing Otter. And when he's not speaking about exploratory testing and the importance of diversity, he's also a veteran D&D dungeon master. Welcome to the podcast, Callum. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's probably worth saying that D&D stands for Dungeons and Dragons and it's a game. I'm not a, <laughs> a scary dungeon master. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that D&D acronym is, uh, yeah, I make some assumptions there that our audience would know what that is because I do and you do. Uh, we'll certainly talk a bit about that later. Um, I, I became aware of you first, Callum, uh, a few years ago at your first Test Bash talk. I think it was a 99 second talk in 2018. Um I will say to you as, as a compliment, I had no idea that you've had enough history behind you to be going for 15 years. I think time has been very kind to you. And you must have worked on some much easier projects than me. <laughs> that and it was a lot of Botox as well. <laughs> no, it's um, Well, thank you. Um, but yes, I, I, I've been around for a, for a long time. Um, I wouldn't say I've had easy projects for sure. Um, but I, yes, I am very fresh faced still uh, <laughs> to look at me. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned that you've just started a new role and obviously I'm now about to enter the job market again, potentially, um, trying to decide how and when I go about doing that. Just out of interest, how did you go about choosing your new role? What was it that attracted you to Adago? That's a really good question. So for me specifically, um, there's a couple of things that are really important for me to look at uh, when it comes to picking a new role. Um, I specifically was looking at do I feel that I could bring something that they needed? So is this an organization who is doing things that I'm interested in and I could help them with? Uh, because I specifically specialize in exploratory testing, but also um, you know, agile um, testing strategies. I was looking at organizations that where automation wasn't the silver bullet, that they were actually looking to engage with other styles of testing as well. And... That was that was like a, a precursor to sort of a, an easy way for me to filter out jobs that um, I wasn't interested in. Then after that, um, there was another piece around how authentic did I feel that I could be? So uh, I was looking during Pride Month. Uh, hooray! So I was able to talk to that um, when I was looking for jobs and start to say, you know, I'm, I'm a queer person in engineering. Is this a safe space for me? Is this something, uh, is this a place, sorry, that I think I'd be able to actually get on with and be able to be me? Mm. Um, I did that uh, not just through talking to people, but also looking on blogs, uh, looking on their websites, looking to see if they'd change their icon to a rainbow icon, things yeah. like that, that basically gave me a hint that um, not only would there be things that I wanted to do there, that I would be able to do them in a way that was authentic to myself. Um, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think being able to be your authentic self and to to work for a company that is is ethical and in a way that you can can get behind and be be passionate about. Like, there's a whole load of, particularly in the Manchester Leeds area where I am, there's a load of really big gaming and gambling organisations who work with really interesting products. But I don't think that I could work for them, just because our success will be based on you know hooking people in and appealing to people's addictive personalities and that, that would be something that i would struggle with to do myself um which is a shame because they work with really interesting tech all this like real-time you know transactional sort of stuff that uh, really high volume stuff is really interesting to work with but I, I, it's not something that i can do and yeah i completely yeah i completely understand and agree with that um everything when you're looking for a new job or you're jumping into the market is about those um give and takes so what will this organization give me cool technology the wage the title you know the the opportunity to talk at events you know all these things that they might give you but what are they taking from you and increasingly people are really involved in those like ethical thoughts um, about is this an ethical company um, are they allowing me to be authentic can i be myself do i agree with them um you know is the manager somebody that uh, i want to work with um i was really lucky um you know um getting interviewed by Nicola and uh, who I'm working with and really engaging with her and, and feeling like we could have a, a really good working relationship because that's really important as well. Mm. So it's about taking that time to understand the give and take. Um, what do they give you, but what would they take from you? And can you balance that out? So definitely those are, those are things that I tend to look at as well. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I'm finding really difficult at the moment is I do like to look for companies who have, um, ethical credentials so for example they have they have um green agendas and mm-hmm. they have well-defined diversity policies the challenge i then feel is I, I kind of get this applier's guilt is if i want to work for a company like that i am a straight white male and i'm like well by applying to work for you am i am i doing you out of hiring someone who, who has a, a better diversity hire ah so the big thing with this um because I, i've worked with uh, hiring <laughs> a mm. lot unsurprisingly um is not don't feel guilty about that what we're looking to do is is not to have numbers of people that are a diversity hire or so on that's that's not the purpose at all the important thing is to basically widen the funnel we're looking to get as many cvs make people feel comfortable applying at places so we show that we're diverse we show that you can be your authentic self so that you want to work for us um then from there we can say right but who's got the best skills for the job so it's not just about going, oh, crikey, we need X percent of women, X percent of non-binary people, X percent of queer people, X percent of people from ethnic um, backgrounds. Um, what we need to be able to do is to say, this is a place where everyone feels comfortable to um, apply for. Then we can pick um, you know, the best testers for the job here. So when you're applying you know, as, as a cisgendered straight white man, mm. um, you, know, you shouldn't worry about that um, because hopefully the company's been made to um, look a certain way that makes everyone feel comfortable to apply. So much like anyone else. And, you know, it means you get to work with other people. You get to learn from their life experiences as well. You get to become more um, socially informed uh, and empathetic to uh, other people's needs and wants. So, you know, it's a win-win um, all around. So I'd say, yeah, don't don't feel um, you should, you're taking away from someone. Um, yeah. If anything, you know, that's a good company. You know, the fact that you want to apply there means that other people should as well. They've done their job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's also why I also 
it's also why I always make sure that I try to champion the agenda for the company once I join, yeah. because that's what I can do. Yeah, it's, I, I change what I can. That's um, it. If, if you're finding that, definitely do that. Like mm. um, alleviate that that feeling uh, by making it a good place for other people to want to work as well. <laughs> yeah. We've got a whole load of things to talk about today, uh, basically basically because there are things I've wanted to talk to you about for ages, but lockdown and the distance has prevented me from doing so. So I'm using today as an excuse. <laughs> One of them that I will get out of the way to begin with is uh, I know that you describe yourself as a, a tattoo enthusiast, and I've seen some, some recent art that you posted on Twitter. Where did it begin for you? Did it start with one small one? And has it sort of grown from there? So um, I actually started uh, getting my tattoos during that little gap that summer, um, a couple of years ago, after the first lockdown. Um, I came into a little windfall of money and uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this for myself. So I'd been on a um, a body journey. I'd lost a lot of weight um, over the last uh, four years. And I was like, you know what, now's the time where I can actually, you know, get a piercing and get some tattoos and so on and actually show these things off. So um, I Instagrammed uh, a lot of pictures. If anyone that's seen my tattoos will see that they're very colourful and very nerdy. Uh, that's that's the look that I wanted to go for. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I, I, I suspect that if and when I get my first one, it will be gaming related, and I only need to look at like one of your arms to see like ten different inspirations. Yeah, fully. So, um, the, the the design for it was always going to be a sleeve. Um, so that windfall of money helped me um, pay for my deposit for a whole sleeve, and I found a guy um, in Preston uh, in the UK. Um, who does specifically pop culture and geeky reference art, uh, very colorful and pretty. And yeah, I messaged him and sent a lot of artwork of different things that I was interested in. (laughs) And the very first piece that we did, um, the top of my right arm, we... um, he, he basically pieced a few things together. Luckily, he pieced some things together that were, were really cool for me. Um, I'm looking at them now. So um, up there, there's like a Dalek and there's Dr. Robotnik. Uh, there's some Pokemon, all things that I cared about as a kid uh, and they have meaning to me. Um, and, and I remember he, he drew the first line was the bottom of Dr. Robotnik's spaceship. And he said, look, if you faint now or if you hate it, at the very least, you've got like one curved line on your arm tattooed that you can hide with your sleeve. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that was the first bit of my tattoo. And then, um, yeah, I've, I've basically for the last year and a half uh, just been yeah going for it. Um, and now I'm up to my second arm. So, yeah, the, uh, the left arm is now uh, <laughs> getting some love as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's something I really, really want to do. Uh, but obviously, tattoo number one, uh, I feel the pressure to to get it right. And, and I think you're right. Like, put it somewhere where you know where it is. <laughs> if even if no one else sees it, don't mm-hmm. start with a, a face tattoo. But. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not a face tattoo, no. no. <laughs> but I would say for your first tattoo, if, if you're interested, um, the way that I went about it, I pulled art and resources that I liked. And I put them into a folder on my phone every day. Um, I looked at them. So I looked at them every day. Sorry. And I made sure that it was art that I still liked to look at after, you know, months. So that's how you know that you go, yeah, this is something that I want by looking at something. Yeah. I mean, I see people like sharing like Squid Game tattoos. It's like, well, that was popular this year. Like, Mm -hmm. what's a Squid Game tattoo going to mean to anyone in five years yeah, exactly. Like all of my tattoos, are like you, when you see them, they're all stuff from like the 90s. It's all stuff that had meaning to me when I was growing up. Um, my, my favorite piece is the Resident Evil inspired thing on my right forearm. Um, 
primarily because uh, Resident Evil, you know, not just my favorite gaming series, but the character that I've got tattooed, Leon Kennedy, uh, was my first ever crush. So yeah, teenage (laughs) Callum in the mid 90s uh, found out that he had a crush on a guy and he was a video game character. So yeah, he had to go on there. <laughs> so yeah. he was it, he was from from uh, my Resident Evil knowledge. It's a bit like he's he's from Resident Evil Two. Is he from the he's, he was the guy in the, the cop uniform at the beginning? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, completely that. So uh, that was really fun because uh, recently they remade the game with photorealistic graphics. So I had to tell my husband, <laughs> Ah, my first boyfriend <laughs> is looking great now. Uh, <laughs> he was really happy about. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, we should probably get on with the reason why we're here. Uh, you've been allowed to bring five songs to the Testers Desert Island that best represent what music means to you and, and how it uh, represents uh, things that you stand for. What is the first song you've chosen? So the first song that I've chosen is Worker Bee by Motion City Soundtrack. It's a band that I found just through um, the Apple AI effectively suggesting music to me um, I, I was going on a little bit of a thing where i found that i was getting stuck in a rut with my music and i was only listening to the same things again and again and this was a, an album that i thought Do you know what i'm actually going to try this out and because of that it's really opened up my mind to um, and opened up my tastes to different styles of music so this is a song that now is pretty much one of i say it's one of my favorite songs uh, it's sort of upbeat, but at the same time, it sort of gives talks about work ethic as well. So pretty exciting. <laughs> Got all the glad hands, black holes and lions, the constant companions of noxious suppliers. That was Motion City Soundtrack with Worker Bee, Callum's first choice today. Now, Callum, one of the things we want to talk about is your passion for exploratory testing. What is it that makes you so keen to talk about it? Yeah, exploratory testing for me is uh, just such an exciting style of testing because it allows me to actually be creative in the type of testing that I'm doing. And it also allows me to, I feel anyway, really get in there and add value to teams. And what I mean by that is I'm allowed to get in early, find out information, play that back to people, learn from them and really be pragmatic in my testing. And I talk about it um, so much because it's it's an area that I think is still not understood. Not everybody has read Explore It by Elizabeth Hendrickson. Um, lots of people are still doing that ad hoc style of testing and calling it exploratory testing. So the market, um, especially outside of London, the market is very much still open to those discussions of how do we formalize this and what is this thing? So um, I do a lot of talking to help educate people on that. Yeah, I think there is now an understanding and an agreement that there is more to testing than just scripted testing, you know, expected input, expected outputs, actual outputs. But what exploratory testing is, is still a bit of a mystery to some people. And there's certainly some of it can be taught and coached. And, you know, why should you choose particular methods over others? But there is still a bit of a I think there is 
like an X factor there. Like you, you need to, to have the knack for it. The knack can't be taught. You, you have to have certain energies and drives and curiosities to be really excelling at exploratory testing. And this really comes out when I'm interviewing people as well. Like try to set an exploratory testing example as part of a tech test. Sometimes just, just flummoxes people if they've not been asked to do it before. Or it's really difficult to judge based on a tech test whether someone is good at it because... I think I spoke about this in the last episode. Like sometimes people will just go down a rabbit hole. Like they will they will use one technique to go really deep on one thing and do that really well, but they'll miss everything else. It's like, well, that strategy is supposed to, that, that that technique is supposed to be part of a wider strategy. Yeah, definitely. Um you you're talking about breadth versus depth of things. Yeah. And and this is the difference where um you get that sort of what I call the ad hoc style of exploratory testing versus something that's more structured and planned. Um if we plan our exploratory tests, if we ensure that we're giving time-boxed um, time to certain areas of testing, we can then ensure that we're going deep into our test by having a time-boxed area. Allows us to actually get into that information that you were talking about, but having that time box so we can say, right, stop after 30 minutes, stop after an hour, you know, this is our plan. We can move on to another area after an hour, move on to another area. That allows us to actually prioritize our exploratory testing, but it also allows us to go broader with our exploratory testing. Like you said, if we just go ad hoc, yeah, we can just get stuck in an area and we don't dig ourselves out of that hole that we're in. But making sure that we say, nope, stop looking at that now, keep on track, keep focused, um, really does um, allow us to use that as a proper approach uh, for our testing. Yeah, m- multiple sort of chained time boxes are really valuable. Like you, you can't start effective exploratory testing until you've explored already to, to to know what it is that you're exploring. So you need you know you need a, a product tour or something to begin with to actually get your head around what it is you're trying to do, and then you can chain together a series of charters and work out what you're going to do. I still see, for example, some people writing user stories, and on the user stories they'll. In the old days, we used to have like one task on there called test it, which is terrible. <laughs> then the, now people have started putting a task on there called do the exploratory testing and a task called do the automated testing. It's like, well, it's not quite that binary. It's no, these are ongoing activities that work hand in hand and they're both valuable and everything around testing is valuable, but there's still that lack of understanding. And I think some of it comes with trying to get the word of testing um, sort of put, pushed through into agile teams. And you've spoken before, in fact, your first 99 second talk at Brighton was about the joy of working with developers. Um, I've I've had challenges before in the past, but I, I largely agree with you. But how do you begin to make inroads with developers in a team where sort of dev and test have largely been separate in the past? Yeah, this for me is all about setting out your stall. It's all about building a relationship. Whenever I've come into a new team, whenever I've started working with developers um, at new organizations, the first thing you have to do is come along and first of all, listen uh, and listen to see what the problems are that people are facing, if any. And then from there, actually set out your stall and say, hi, everyone. I'm Callum. I'm your tester. I'm here to do these things. I will do them in these ways and you can hold me to account for these things. Um, That then starts to build up that element of trust and it starts to show, oh, we can get value out of this person. That's really exciting. And what I tend to do is I use my exploratory testing in service to the developers and in service to the team. I push my testing left. I tell them that I'm going to look at risks before we've even developed anything to take the cognitive load off them. 
um, rather than just having a couple of acceptance criteria, now they've got more that tells them the scope of what it is they have to develop, stops bugs from happening. Um, I pair with them and we do exploratory testing to find out more information about what we're developing in a technical sense. We put breakpoints in things and chase data. We get information that's meaningful to them as well. And also, I just show that I'm pragmatic. I do my debriefs. Um, I think I've, I've written about debriefs in the past, but I have conversations with the developers that I'm working with to say, what do you think? You're the expert in what you intended to develop. Is this right? Is this wrong? I'm not here to catch you out. I'm here to give you information. And having that, you can hold me to account for these things, and I'm here to help you with giving you information and taking my own ego out of it, really helps build that relationship with people. I always feel that like that test dev antagonism does come from a bit of ego sometimes uh, and not understanding each other's perspective. Um, but ultimately, everybody wants to do a good job. So it's about how do we give people the tools and information to help them do their good job. <laughs> Yeah, we've we've both used the word relationship there, and it is very much like a you know an interpersonal relationship. It's you know there's give and take, there's compromise, there's understanding what the other person is thinking, and I think all of that is easier to achieve when, and I think all of that is easier to achieve when you are actually embedded within a scrum team because you're talking to people day in day out. Now, but your new role and a couple of my recent roles, I've been sat outside the team, sort of shape, helping to shape wider strategy whilst not actually embedded within the team. Uh, does that present extra challenges if you're not hearing these conversations happening day in, day out, particularly if, you know, if you're working remotely, for example? Yeah, very much so. It's, it's something that I'm finding at the moment and that I'm coming up with personal strategies to deal with. Um, that if I'm not sat within a team, I'm not actually identifying or seeing what people need, what people want. But we can do the same thing. And I, I'm doing the same thing, but just from a higher level. I'm still having discussions with people and talking to them um, to say, hey, what are your pain points in testing? What is needed? I'm talking to them about what we can do. And uh, after listening and hearing their problems going, right, I've heard you. Here's things that we can do. And I deliver those sort of more widely and at a top level and to the test team um, as opposed to my scrum team. But again, it's that same strategy. And again, setting out my stall, um, we had a big Friday all hands. And in that Friday all hands, I was like, do you know what? I'm going to introduce myself. Hi, I'm Callum. I'm this kind of tester. Um, I will do testing in this way for you. Um, I'll sing a little song for you just so that you know that I'm generally a good person and not just here to be mean. It's about building that rapport with people. So yeah, it's a bit wider um, than just a product team. But Instead, um, it's doing it at that company level, and but using the same sorts of strategies for it. Yeah, and you certainly do have to think about it a bit differently, particularly as those companies grow in size. I mean, I've managed test teams who've been split across uh, three three scrum teams uh, in my last role. Mm. Before that, I was I was a test lead across five teams, and you just can't attend like all the ceremonies and all the retros for all those teams. You have to rely on putting the word out there and those teams learning to work for themselves. You know, that's the, why delegation is important anyway. Yeah, I think you very much have to just trust the people that you're working with, especially when you get to being like a lead or, um, you know, in that management sort of that structure. Uh, and you're shaping strategy, you have to put trust that the people that you've hired or that you're working with want to do a good job and are going to try and do things. And then from there, you can be available to talk to them, help coach them if they need it, or to 
give you information. Uh, they can give you information uh, about what's working and what's not working. And then you can adjust based on that. But it's, again, about building that relationship. It's just a different one. Rather than building a relationship specifically with developers to say, I'm going to look at this testing and do it for you, it's building a relationship with your testers and the development organization to say, I'm going to set out a strategy that will help you, or I'm going to look at KPIs that are there to support the processes that we all want. They're not here to manage you. They're not here to you know micromanage you. Uh, it's clearly an area that we're both passionate about. And again, <laughs> talking about whatever my next role might be, I'm looking very much into, it may not even be a role that has tests in the title. I think some degree of agile coach or, or wider strategist is something that really is of interest to me. Um, but yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, the big thing that I think that is different between the two is the learning for deferred gratification of something. So that's this is the big difference uh, that I'm finding at the moment. When you are in a product team uh, or a project team, it's really easy for you to go, I've done this risk analysis uh, and it took me a day and I've showed it to someone and they've gone, wow, you saved me some time. And you get that gratification immediately. When you're agile coaching, when you're looking more at a strategic level, when you're like a test lead or a manager, you've got to be thinking wider. You're looking like maybe quarter three and you're doing KPIs that might give some information to management and they might deal with it at that point. Mm. And so it's learning how to go, I'm finding joy in the coming up with information and the investigation rather than the outcomes of it. And I think part of that exploratory testing mindset that I have um, is really about the finding information uh, side and presenting it. So finding that joy from it. Fantastic. And I'll put links in the show notes to everything we talked about in terms of the books we've referenced, some of the techniques we've referenced. Um, so there are links for, for you there. Uh, obviously, you can come and talk to myself or Callum if you're interested in learning more about those things. But it's time to move on to song number two. So this song is Join Me in Death by him or his infernal majesty. I had to put in a slightly goth number there because I am a self-proclaimed goth. Um, this song's really important to me, um, not only because it's just beautiful in its darkness, but at the same time, it's a song that I used to listen to with my husband when we were playing a lot of World of Warcraft. So it brings back very specific memories of um, beating up kobolds in the Elwyn Forest. <laughs> <laughs> and we've wasted for so long For this moment to come We're so anxious to be together Together in That was Join Me in Death by him. Now, due to my terrible timing, I missed getting this episode out during Pride Month. Although, Callum, I know you were actively tweeting and saying to people, you know, if you want me to come into your organization and talk about um, about Pride issues, then just let me know because you'll do it. What did you get up to personally within June? Yeah, I did a, a few things. Um, so, yes, happy belated Pride Month, everyone. <laughs> um, so this Pride, um, I did a few cool things. Um, I... In my organization, um, I started doing Pride Facts. Um, I, every day, uh, would come to stand up with different Pride Facts for people. 
Uh, just so that I could share a bit of our culture uh, and share why um, Pride is important um, at this time. Um, I even took to Twitter to, to doing a few of those as well. And on top of that, I spoke with the British Computer Society about um, diversity of thought and diversity and inclusion in development as well. So um, I got a couple of talks in and, yeah, uh, got a few things um, on Twitter as well. I also blogged uh, a couple of times. I blogged about some really great queer engineers um, who had been working in the industry. Um, it's not just Alan Turing. There's a few other people. Um, just a fun fact, uh, and I'll point you to my blog uh, <laughs> for more details, but a fun fact is, um, did you know that all of the processes in modern smartphones were developed by a trans person? So you have trans person, uh, people to think for how mobile phones work. And... I also blogged uh, and spoke about uh, my journey uh, as a queer person working in the um, in engineering and sometimes how, you know, that was a good thing and sometimes how that's been a bit problematic. Yeah, we spoke a bit at the top about, about the importance of, of companies that, that respect diversity. Um, you did blog about a time when you felt that wasn't the case, when you were, you were treated poorly for, for, for your, your own personality, effectively. Yeah, this was a time where I was working um, as an embedded tester in an engineering team. And what happened was um, we were being asked to crunch. We're being asked to push and to meet a deadline. And my job in the team was to basically say, hey, are we happy that by doing this, we're basically not going to meet our definition or the organization's definition of dumb? by missing out certain things. When I was asked that, the engineering manager who had jumped on uh, this call, well, it wasn't a call back then, it was an actual meeting, if you can imagine <laughs> such a thing. Um, the actual meeting, um, the engineering manager said, oh, you're being too emotional. You're being too emotional about this. And it floored me and hit me in my tracks because I literally just made a statement about definition of done. And I, along with a number of other people who are, you know, uh, not the straight white man in, in development, um, sometimes get this where our otherness is used against us. Um, in this situation, mm. I was basically being dismissed because I talk with my hands. And I'm a bit theatrical in camp. Um, I was fully dismissed. And it wasn't that I was being engaged with for my testing strategy or, you know, my questioning of the actual quality that was going on. I was being dismissed as oh, I've got something that I can basically use to say, you're not engaged in this properly. Um, yeah, they, they, weren't, they weren't saying that you weren't making a good point. They were saying, okay, I can, this is the conclusion I've jumped to as to the reason for your point, which is, is, is wrong on two fronts. You had a point and also you can't dismiss that based on someone's personality. Yes. So just it's just such an easy and lazy thing to do to make like a character attack on someone for something they can't help. Um, it would be almost the same as basically being like, oh, you're ginger. So we're ignoring you. It's yeah. um, just such a, a lazy way of yeah ignoring a, an actual problem. So um, like quality is, is a harder problem to solve than, you know, shutting someone down <laughs> so mm. we just go into that sort of mode for things um so yeah after that i you know I, I did have conversations with that manager and and said you know could you understand how you know dismissing me in front of my peers and teaching them 
that they can just dismiss me because I'm too emotional, inverted commas, um, is, is a bad thing and, and could be seen as homophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the backpedaling and all of the defending themselves came in. Um, so, you know, um, that wasn't somewhere that I felt that I could continue working at. Um, so I, I did actually leave that organization as a result of that. But yes, I, I've definitely had that happen. <laughs> mm, yeah, it, it's really difficult to, to juggle personal relationships. I've, I've had an experience in the past where, um, while I didn't have as many layers as that, I, I worked under a, a scrum master <clears throat> slash product lead who, um, see if I can do this as anonymously as possible. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I would quite often uh, make cases similar to the ones that you were saying, you know, I would hold the team to account and say, well, you know, are we doing this to, to the correct standard? Or he may say, oh, well, let's just, just move forward with this. And I would say, well, actually, we said we were going to do this, this, and this, and we haven't. And on more than one occasion, he took me to one side, uh, both physically and um, remotely once lockdown and things happened. Mm-hmm. I was asking, like, Neil, have you got a problem with me? I'm like, no no it's absolutely nothing personal at all like he, he thought i was making personal attacks on him when i say no this is my role that i'm serving within the team and i'm trying to help the team to do a job that the team has said they're going to do and i don't know to what extent that was that was on him or on me for the way we, we put ourselves across but um you really need to work together as a collective and respect each other in the team if you're going to make strides that's really important. And, and it's part of that um, that we talked about earlier, that setting that shop of what I'm here to do mm. and what you can hold me to account for. Um, we can say, hey, here's how I work. Here's me. And I'm here to basically say, this may be a problem. This might be an issue. I'm giving you information. You can use it how you want. I'm not going to be mad if you don't use it. And you know, let's not, you know, get into a personal conflict as a result of that. And I think by setting out that shop front early, we can avoid those sorts of personal us and them dynamics because we're creating a an overall us, we inclusive uh, environment. Yeah. And it's why I really look for companies that uh, live and breathe their values rather than just saying that they have them. Like like tokenism is, is a terrible thing. You, you mentioned at the top that it, it's great to look for companies who, who put the rainbow flag on their logo during Pride mm-hmm. Month, but if they're not living and breathing that day in, day out, you know, if that's not feeding through into their recruitment policies, then is that actually making a change for the better? Completely. I completely agree with that. Um, I, I think I spoke and I, I made a tweet about um, the fact that um, there was a Stonewall survey um, some years ago and about a third of recipients of this survey basically said that their organization um, had made them feel uncomfortable to come out because of negative repercussions. And that mm. number increases um, with people who are uh, of the trans community. So there's so much further to go with things. Um, I've worked at organizations where, you know, they put the rainbow flag uh, on their logos and they want to go hey you know we're great um we're inclusive but actually the culture of the place the culture of the work environment is not what they're putting forwards you know you'll have people doing banter and they'll be like oh mate that's really gay (sighs) kind of thing Mm. and the company won't push back on things like that. And the reason why they won't push back on that, especially at the moment, is because of things like the great resignation. And they say, oh, you know, we don't want to actually, you know, make a hostile work environment for people by clamping down on these things. To which my response would be, you're creating a hostile work environment for people of the queer community by allowing these things to happen. So there are 
still choices to be made and there's still a way to go um, with these things. Yeah, I'm going to make sure I put in a link to a piece I just saw on LinkedIn as well around toxicity in the workplace and what it means to to allow it to persist, you know, about, you know, oh, we've got this great engineer and he rubs everyone up the wrong way, but he's brilliant at what he does. So we'll just let him let him get on with it. And, and the way that ripples out through an organization. And yeah, it, it's something that for as much as we've made great strides since Stonewall, there's still a long way to go, and particularly in tech. Very much that. Um, and like I said, um, with this too emotional thing, we're still finding that there's some organizations and some companies that are very much don't bring your authentic self. Don't be you. Um, make sure that you conform to what we believe engineering to look like. And some of that's implicit um, as well as explicit as well. The fact that um, certain people's opinions might be listened to or the fact that the people who are promoted or you know seniors or leads in engineering are the types of people who wear a polo shirt and chinos and look a certain way and behave a certain way. Or it might just be that we hire people that look like ourselves rather than looking for diversity in people. And we say, well, we want people to have come from this university because it's the best university rather than the implicit thing of, I want people like me around me. Um, so there's there's so much um, that we need to do and as we said with the hiring thing it's about opening that funnel and being open to different people coming in expressing themselves in certain ways and assuming good intent of everyone i feel like i could do the same outro to this section as the last section which is this is a topic we're both clearly very passionate about and if you want to learn more come and talk to us because (laughs) that is true we're going to move on in the next section to uh bring uh an otter onto the podcast for the first time which would be brilliant but before we do that what was your third song choice today so my third song choice is Animal by the 8-Bit Big Band. This is a really cool uh, cover of a song, uh, but in a big band style, that sort of swing style. And I really got into this band uh, because they mostly do video game covers Um because I'm a big nerd, and uh, because I was, at the time, uh, learning how to swing dance. So it was a really good uh, song to be able to learn to Charleston and swing to. So yeah, hopefully enjoy it. That was the 8-Bit Big Band with Animal featuring the vocal talents of Christina V. Now, Callum, we've talked a bit today about some of the blog articles that you put together and also the fact that you've spoken at conferences and now hosted some as well. Speaking and hosting are two very different things that require different energies. Do you, do you have a favourite? Which one, which one is most nerve-wracking for you? Ooh, so I think my favourite is hosting and I think speaking is the most nerve-wracking. So the reason for that is when I'm hosting, um, it's about setting a vibe, um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's about pumping people up, getting them involved. And also it's about bigging up the people around you. So you've got other speakers, you're bigging them up. You're saying, hey, mm-hmm. this person's great. And they're going to talk to you about this really awesome thing. Yeah, exciting people. Woo! And you can say that in a number of different ways. But when you're speaking you're seen as the expert. It's about information rather than a vibe. So 
when I'm speaking about a topic, whether it be exploratory testing, diversity, or even how Dungeons and Dragons made me a better tester, um, it's about conveying information in a meaningful way that's going to change people's lives, um, which is quite an overblown way of saying it. But it's about conveying that information. So for me, um, I find that more nerve wracking because I want the information that I give via a talk uh, in, when I'm speaking to be different to just being upbeat and positive when I'm hosting something, uh, which yeah. comes more naturally to me, I suppose. Uh, uh, hosting is, is very much more back and forth, a bit like we're doing now. Like it, it can be unplanned and unscripted to an extent where speaking, at least within your own head, you have the pressure on yourself to deliver the content that you are expected to deliver, which is strange because nobody else knows the content that you're going to deliver. <laughs> so they're not, they, they don't have the same expectation. That's one of the reasons that I like to do talks with either very minimal words on the slides. And I know you've, you did a really good tweet with Ramon about this recently about mm -hmm. slide content, but like slides with zero or very few words are so much less pressure on yourself because no one knows these, the stats that you're thinking you've got to share in the background. It's very much that Eddie Izzard style of speaking where you improv and riff off of your topics. So it's like um, being um, a stand-up comedian. I have done that in the past. Uh, I've done slide decks where I've just got either an image or a title or a quote, something quite small that I basically just put up. Uh, it also stops people from having to sit and read a slide, uh, honestly. But um yeah, I, I find that improv style of speaking. It's more natural. Uh, you can convey things. You don't worry about stumbling over your script so much. But again, it is difficult because you have to know your topic uh, a lot more and you have to be able to roll with things. So sometimes, yeah, a script is good because you can like, go back to it. But as you get more experienced in a topic, maybe that sort of more improv style is good um, because, like you said, no one knows what you're going to talk about, really. Yeah. So <laughs> you can just... I, Yeah, I will never forget the talk that I did at Test Bash in Philadelphia when um, there was supposed to be a monitor at the front of the stage that, you know, it shows you the slide views so that it comes back to you. And I had notes written in there. And the monitor just didn't work. Just for my talk, it just didn't feel like working. Now, luckily, I'd put the work in to memorise most of what was going on behind the scenes. But had I been thinking, oh, well, just rely on my notes to get me through that, I would have been absolutely effed. <laughs> F, F on that one the, if, yeah <laughs> the same thing happened to me um when i was at um test bash x in brighton uh doing my talk um the little podium was to the side uh quite far to the side where people wouldn't be able to see you so basically i had my uh, slide notes on there and i'd have a quick look but then walk back over to the presentation screen so that people could actually see me so yeah you can get very much into that oh no where are my slides and then having to just improv <laughs> yeah <laughs> but speaking of improv on, on the hosting side you you are such a natural when it comes to that and the, the number of different ways that you do you get involved in that the fact that you've brought uh ballads into your sections before um before you'd hosted for mot had you hosted for anyone else before not no i don't think i have um i'm just having a think now no i hadn't uh, but um i've done a lot of theater things um, so I, I have actually compared um, a fashion show before at university and I have done obviously a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, which is effectively like hosting events and um, again, theatre. So it's just something that um, I pulled in different skills uh, from mm -hmm. even like running demos for companies and doing consultancy yeah. as a tester, pulling in all of those skills and using those to basically start hosting. Did, did I see on Twitter recently that you've actually, you're heading back to the theatre in October? 
I am, yes. Um, fun, fun fact for everyone. Uh, I shall be in the ensemble of uh, the Bross organization's uh, version of the Adams Family uh, in October. Uh, so I will be um, a spooky ancestor ghost singing and dancing, uh, <laughs> which is really exciting. So yes, uh, I've, I've gone back into, now that COVID is over, gone back into musical theatre, uh, <laughs> which is very good. Fantastic. I have a, a mini sort of bucket list thing of um, originally it was supposed to be 40 things I wanted to achieve before I was 40. The problem being that COVID arrived when I turned 39. So it like removed my ability to do a lot of those things on that list. And one of them was I want to perform in a, a play or a pantomime, you know, appear on stage. It's something I've always dreamed of doing. Uh, and, you know, particularly like local theatre productions, you know, the barrier to that is relatively low. Uh, so mm-hmm. look look for me to do something like that, uh, if not this year, then, then next year. Um, before we wrap the section up, though, we've, we've name checked Ramon a couple of times the, the, the Ramon, Ramon the testing otter um, for those who aren't familiar with him uh, and it's a shame that we're only in audio here so it's hard of him to participate but um, can you share where he came from and, and what role he serves for you Yes. So Ramon the Testing Otter um, actually came just as a way of initially um, trying to build rapport with developers effectively. So back back in the day when I was um, first embedding into Teams, um, I would do a lot of things like giving people kudos for doing good testing work. Um, I had like little pictures that I would um, draw out like medals or, or so on and say, hey, you know, well done for running some exploratory testing or your unit test coverage. Have some testing kudos. Um, and so on. And that actually changed into at some point, um, I found this picture of an otter holding a bottle of beer. And (laughs) I'd say, hey, well done for actually picking up an exploratory testing session. I've trained this otter to bring you a beer. And because he's only small, it will take you three years to come bring it to you. And over time, um, and working with my colleague at eBay, Fee, we both... um, basically built this persona of Ramon RPA, who we're trained to basically bring developers rewards and snacks uh, whenever that they had um, done good work. But unfortunately, because it was an otter, they'd either eaten the snacks or it would take them a long time to bring them. So they never manifested. Um, But then that sort of then kept going and we kept building on it. So at this point now, um, I've been using Ramon um, in emoji form uh, all over Slack just to build that rapport with people. At the last place I worked at, um, I actually had comments back being like, wow, we were in crunch and you're finding all these bugs. But the fact that you put a little otter picture uh, or a little Ramon picture after finding these bugs, like really lightened the tone of it. And it didn't make me want to scream and throw my laptop out the window. (laughs) So it works. Um, So, yeah, it's just something that I've, I've used for branding to really build that rapport and also just show I'm not here to try and like trip you up or be mean to you. It's like, oh, sorry, but here's a cute animal picture. It's <laughs> trying to say, look, I, I get that you're stressed. And here's my way of trying to alleviate it whilst doing my job as well. Fantastic. And has Ramon been introduced to the folks at Adaga yet? <laughs> Actually, he has. Um, I In that um, Friday meeting that, that I mentioned, mm. uh, I did have a whole slide about Ramon uh, and explained uh, <laughs> what he's all about. Um, he has been on camera and there are already some Ramon emojis and people have said, I can't wait to get my first Ramon. So <laughs> uh, people are very excited for Ramon. Well, stay tuned, everyone. I'm sure there'll be T-shirts and more branding to follow. <laughs> <laughs> People wanted uh, him to have his own Instagram account, but I think uh, <laughs> that's that's quite a lot. 
yeah that, that, that takes effort and energies that I, I don't know whether i have the time to spare for that but um, we're going to move on to, to song number four now and um, we we spoke in song number three was was kind of video game themed this one is more so so song number four is the song genova it's a song from the soundtrack of final fantasy 7 by nobu umatsu and for me this is an important song not only because uh during my wedding, we had a lot of video game music, and this was one of the songs that we played, but also uh, because I put it on when I want to really get into my testing. It is a boss battle theme. It's really there me going, right, come on, let's get fired up. Let's fight this product. Let's find some issues. So I use it to really get pumped. So yes, hopefully it'll get you pumped as well. From the soundtrack to Final Fantasy VII, that's Nobuo Oumatsu with Genova. That version you heard there was from the album Distant Worlds 2. Now, finally, we can't get out of an interview today without talking to you about the joy of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, for as long as you've been in tech, you've been a dungeon master for even longer than that. Um, <laughs> are there skills that are transferable between being a DM and being a tester? There are so many skills that are transferable and it's not just hitting cobbles with a sword, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> no, um, I actually spoke about this um, at my talk at Test Bash X, how Dungeons and Dragons made me a better tester. And I think the key points from it, because I, I, I won't like do that talk again right now. But I'll, the key... I'll, link, I'll link to it. There'll be a link <laughs> in the notes for it. Good, good. Um, the key points uh, there are improv. Uh, learning how to say yes and to something rather than shutting the door on something. So if I was to say, um, oh, we need this feature here. Oh, yes. And if it goes wrong, we could put this error message. Oh, yes. And when we have an error message, we could put this text in it. Things like that. You're building. It, it creates flow. That's the biggest one. And also just the ability to try working as a team with different skills of people. Because um, in Dungeons & Dragons, uh, it's basically storytelling with a number of different people with different characters and skills. Um, some people are warriors. They're big and strong. Some people are wizards. They're smart. Some people are bards. They're charismatic and talk and sing a lot. Uh, and some people are evil warlocks like myself who just want power at all costs. But um Learning how to deal with these different types of people and also when to shove the spotlight onto them is great in an agile team because you can basically turn around and say, hey, I'm not so great at the development side of things. Now it's your turn to shine. And then they go and do their thing. They say, right, testing, you're up. It's about learning that team building and team working uh, thing as well. Yeah, I think all of those things are things that really appeal to me, particularly the improv and being able to adapt uh, to a situation. Um I haven't been in a D&D game for a long time, uh, but what I have been doing is, is consuming a lot of podcasts about D&D &D because 
as you say, it, it deals a lot with improv. So there's a lot of really good improv comedy podcasts that are D and D themed. Uh, one of my favourites is called Chaotic Adequate, which is kind of a riff <laughs> on the different character types. But it's like it's a group of comedians who aren't very good, uh, kind of fumbling their way through a campaign uh, in a hilarious way. Um, that's a really good one. But the main challenge is a lot of those podcasts have been going so long that to pick up a new one means listening to like 400 episodes, and I haven't got the time for that. But um, it'd be really good to get a campaign going sometime. We, we very briefly had a a and d channel on the ministry of testing slack where we were going to get a group of us together and we'd arranged to meet in london on a snowy december day and the snow came down too hard for us to get there and then we never got it going got off the ground it's a real shame but um as a dm i guess you've had some challenges of your own of, of late have you been trying to run any campaigns during lockdown over over zoom or something i very much did uh, and yes mm. it, it was challenging um all the way during lockdown i actually worked with the charity survivors uk as a dungeon master to use dungeons and dragons as a group therapy for people mm. that had suffered through abuse um so i was running dungeons and dragons alongside a therapist and we would basically just run the game um, to allow people to work through ideas. Maybe, um, you know, Frank couldn't talk about what they've been through, but Kragnar the Destroyer could talk about what they've been through. And we had to do that all over Zoom because it was the pandemic. And for me as a dungeon master, that was a really interesting challenge because rather than being in person, uh, rather than being able to use props and so on, you really had to just use your voice, just use your communication style to sort of convey a message. Um, if I may, um, it kind of looked a bit like this. So this is basically uh, me trying to set out um, a vibe, um, effectively just using my voice. So your party sits around a cheery campfire, keeping warm on this misty night. Tendrils of fog swirl around you, creating a serene calm in this forest glade. The smell of smoke and cooking meats gives a homey smell to the camp. And as the woods become quiet and the air starts to chill, your campfire sputters and dies. The mists thicken and encroach upon your camp, growing closer and closer as the night wears on. By morning, the fog hangs thick in the air, turning the trees around your campsite into grey ghosts, passive sentinels that watch. It's then you notice these aren't the same trees that surrounded your camp the night before. <laughs> so you can see it's a lot of like really trying to get that emotion and scene setting just through your voice. <laughs> so it is a lot more work than it, than it normally would be. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I can see us pivoting into a and d podcast if we're not careful. That, that sounds like, yeah... <laughs> That was amazing to listen to. Um, just, uh, just advertising my skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really frustratingly for me, like I had, I tweeted something really cryptic like a year ago saying, oh, I've, I've got this really good idea for a project that I might want to launch. And I can now tell you what it is because someone else has already done it, <laughs> which yeah. is I, I wanted to create a, a D&D sort of themed, sort of a, a campaign storytelling game based around the world of software development, um, <laughs> where you, you you have your classes, which are different roles in, in Agile. And, you know, you have your quests, which are, you know, around releasing a project or whatever and you know you roll a critical fail and it, it you know your testing cycle gets screwed up or something but there is actually one already out there um it's created by emma hopkinson spark uh, it's a game called agile 101 and it is very much that so i've been beaten to it um but <laughs> it's out there and i wanted to mention it because it, it took me a while to find but it's it uh, <laughs> looks really interesting maybe coming to a conference near you sometime soon that's amazing. Um, I need to look into that. And the, the great thing is, is when someone creates it, you can run it. Like, just yeah. pick it up and run it. Um, mm. That that sounds really fun. And it 
definitely it's, it's a good way to start teaching people skills uh, for Agile. Um, I had a product owner who took us all for improv classes um, to learn how to yes and, and it really helped the team out. So doing something like playing Dungeons and Dragons, learning how to empathize with other people, how to do that improv um, will really help your teams as well. So if you can find someone to run something like this for you, I say do it. Well, I'm eagerly trying to get hold of a deck of cards. If I get one in time for Test Bash in uh, Test Bash UK in Manchester in September, then expect to find me there with a deck. Uh, I'm sure we'll have, we'll have a game or two. <laughs> uh, I'll come along. I'll definitely yeah. come along. <laughs> but we're rapidly running towards our conclusion now, which means you've got one more song to choose. What's your final song today, Callum? So this song, this final song is an upbeat number that I chose. It is called Kaboom by I Fight Dragons. They are an awesome chip tune uh, band uh, who use, um, I think they, they use instruments built out of old Game Boys uh, to put uh, their backing tracks together. So hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, I really love this one. And it's a band that my husband turned me on to um, at one point. So it's nerdy, it's upbeat, it's rock. So go for it. Tell yourself it's them on me And you can justify almost anything So whose side are you on? That was I Fight Dragons with Kaboom with an exclamation mark, which stat fans, I believe, is the first song with an exclamation mark since episode one, when Alex Schladerbeck picked System of Down's Chop Suey exclamation mark. <laughs> so a little record there for you to, uh, today, Callum. Uh, you're allowed to bring one thing more with you to the Desert Island, which is a book to keep you company during your weeks, months or years, depending on how lucky you are. Uh, what book have you chosen today? Surprising nobody, I imagine, I will be bringing the Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master book. Uh, So that whilst... Fifth edition? Yes, well, yes, it will be fifth (laughs) edition. Uh, So that when I'm on the desert island, I will be able to continue to run games um, because um, everything uh, other than that is up to my imagination. So I will be able to uh, make a lot of entertainment for ourselves uh, whilst on the desert island. Yeah, I believe the island is currently short of some dice, which may present a challenge. What would what would you work around if you didn't have access to dice? Um, well, you'd, you'd basically wouldn't you just create a grid uh, in the sand and then throw a stone and see what number it landed in, um, potentially. Or um, you could there are there are loads of ways of, of randomly number generating. Uh, you could basically yeah. go right. How many seagulls are there? That's the number. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or um, in some ways, um, you know, we we can take that out entirely. We can yeah. just uh, story tell. I think someone has smuggled some pen and paper onto an island in a previous episode. So you could probably fashion together a, a cube of some kind with some numbers on it. I'm sure <laughs> worst case scenario, uh, a D20 might be difficult out of paper, but um, you Perhaps, actually, you'd, have, you'd have time to give it a try. A, a plea to other people who are joining this podcast <laughs> and bringing things, please bring dice. Nice. I'll run a game. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I'm not sure whether we should be coaxing other people onto the island, but we will be back <laughs> next month with another guest. Uh, next month we'll be talking to uh, Nicola Lindgren, who actually interviewed Callum recently. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So you can have a little bit of a a transition into next month but in the meantime Callum if people would like to get in touch with you where is the best place for them to do that yeah you can find me on Twitter at C8HurstRyan or CakeHurstRyan if you prefer or on LinkedIn uh, where I uh, message occasionally and also Callum 8 Ryan's testing blog 
effectively, I've got a very unique name. If you look up Callum Akehurst Ryan, you're sure to find me. And as we enter the second half of the year, uh, we're entering conference season now. Is there anything you've got lined up in terms of talks or comparing? I do believe that I will be the host or one of the hosts at Test Bash UK uh, this September. So, yes, if, if you uh, feel the need to see me uh, in corporeal meat form, then I will be there at Test Bash. <laughs> if not need, then certainly want, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> and those t- tickets are available now on the Ministry of Testing site. Uh, we're rapidly approaching the date of the conference. I cannot wait to see some people in person for the first time in a number of years for me. So uh, it's going to be great times. And for those of you who can't make it in person, uh, we'll be back here on the Airwaves next month with another episode. And uh, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Test Design and Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing, written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Green Day. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island. <laughs>